This year, I'm starting birthday shoutouts for my Patreon supporters. If you're on Patreon and you haven't sent me your birth month yet, go ahead and message me with that. Even if your birthday is in January, you have not lost your chance. I have more episodes to go this month. I want to send out huge birthday shoutouts to Linda, Gabrielle, Erica, Tasha, Amy, Colleen, Stacy, Heather, Shelly, and Nicole. Happy birthday. When Fred Jablin and Piper Roundtree began dating, people couldn't help but think it was a case of opposites attract. But when their differences strained their marriage to the breaking point, an expensive and drawn-out divorce followed, and it ended in murder. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank Carrie for suggesting this case to me. It is a big, big case with lots of details. So as you can tell from the title, this is part one out of two episodes. If you're the type who likes to listen to these two-parters back-to-back, go ahead and pause and check this out next week when the second part drops. The three major sources for this episode and next week's episode were the book Die My Love by Catherine Casey, a 48 Hours piece called Two Wigs, a Gun, and a Murder. I mean, what a title, right? And a Richmond Times Dispatch article by Paige Aiken. That article actually ends up becoming part of the case down the road, but that is something we'll get into next week. Let's get started in the autumn of 1981. 29-year-old Fred Jablin had been teaching at the University of Texas at Austin as a communications professor for roughly two years. One evening, he and a colleague named John had plans to go to an event together. John had invited a student to go with them 21-year-old Piper Roundtree, who was in her final year at the school. But John called Fred that day and told him that he couldn't make it. But he said he had the student coming and couldn't get in touch with her to cancel the plans. John asked Fred if he would meet up with her, and Fred said, sure. So it was because of a friend bailing on plans they had that Piper and Fred officially met. Piper had actually taken one of Fred's courses the previous semester, but it was one of those huge lecture hall style classes, so he only vaguely remembered her, and certainly not by name. But after this one night going out together, they hit it off right away, and they were pretty much inseparable after this. They moved in together in December 1981, after only a few months of dating. Fred and Piper were pretty different in a lot of ways. Piper was the youngest of five children. She was born into a military family. After her father retired, the family settled in southern Texas, pretty close to the Mexican border. Piper's upbringing was impacted greatly by her father William's alcoholism. 
even after he had a stroke in his late 40s when Piper was still pretty young, he continued to drink. So now we have the brain damage from the stroke plus the alcohol abuse, and it made William unstable. He had previously been a mean drunk anyway, but now the family could not safely live with him in the home. He moved out, but he and Piper's mother did stay married. Though Piper was intelligent, she had to work hard for her good grades in school, most likely because she had ADHD. What we now call ADHD wasn't often diagnosed or treated in the 60s or the 70s, so it's not a huge surprise that Piper was not diagnosed until college. Fred grew up with just one older brother in Floral Park, New York, which is basically Queens. He had a warm and loving upbringing with the support of both of his parents. He did have a short-lived marriage in his early 20s that did end in divorce in 1977, which was right around the time he earned his PhD and three years before he met Piper. Piper was free-spirited and artistic, while Fred was more exacting and played it safe. And that's likely what attracted them to each other. Piper's friend LaVon told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that Piper's quirky side appealed to Fred, while Fred's calmness appealed to Piper. When the two started living together, Piper moved into a house in Austin that Fred already owned, and she stayed there for the semester until she graduated from the University of Texas. Piper had a double major in communication and German, and she was awarded a scholarship for a year at the University of Mannheim, which is pretty obviously located in Mannheim, Germany. It was a great opportunity that Piper was, of course, not going to turn down. The couple did not split up when she left for her year abroad. However, Fred did learn that Piper had met someone in Germany Maybe she was dating him. Maybe she was interested in him. And Fred wasn't entirely sure where that left their relationship. So he actually flew over to Germany to visit Piper and I presume talk about their future, whatever future they might have together. And whatever they did talk about, it smoothed things over for both of them because Fred returned to Texas after the visit. And when Piper finished her year abroad in 1983, she returned to the home that they had shared before she left. Piper applied to and was accepted at St. Mary's University Law School, which is an hour and a half south of Austin. It's in San Antonio. During her first semester there, in October 1983, 23-year-old Piper and 31-year-old Fred married two years after they started dating. A year of their relationship was spent on different continents. And the year they were in the same house was not consecutive. They were in the honeymoon period of a new relationship when Piper left for Germany. And then they were in the honeymoon period of her having just returned when they got married. I'm not judging them for getting married quickly. I'd be a massive hypocrite if I did that. I'm just saying that they didn't know each other as well as most couples 
would after having been together for two years prior to getting married. And so as they adjusted to the day-in, day-out living together, there were some things that were difficult. Piper didn't necessarily realize exactly how careful Fred was with things like money and budgets, and even his expectations of having a more traditional wife who kept a tidy home. And Fred didn't know that Piper had a rough childhood that she was still healing from, and He didn't know about her ADHD or about her somewhat lackadaisical approach to things she didn't like doing, like housekeeping. So not knowing that Piper had these particular struggles, Fred was surprised when the brilliant Piper ended up on academic probation in law school due to her grades. She wasn't working, but she did have a three-hour round-trip commute to classes, and that ate up a chunk of her day that she could have used studying, working on papers, that sort of thing. Fred was paying Piper's tuition in what he saw as an investment in their joint future. Whatever Piper could earn as an attorney, would more than make up for whatever he paid for her tuition. So Fred had a layered interest in Piper succeeding. So Fred decided to flip the commute. They rented out their house in Austin and then rented a place closer to Piper's school. She would have more time to do homework and to study, and Fred would take on the three-hour round-trip commute. And this plan worked. Piper graduated in 1986 from law school. Her grade point average and class placement, it's not where they needed to be to be scouted by a big law firm, but she got her degree. They moved back to the house in Austin where Piper just had to focus on studying and passing the bar exam, which she did. She eventually started working for the district attorney's office, trying all of those complicated and rigorous cases they give to new lawyers, which is to say she spent a lot of time in traffic court. But that's how it is when you're just starting out. So Fred's ability to see the problem in the situation and work through it until they found a solution was great. It would serve them well during their marriage. But not everything can be fixed with a bigger budget or moving closer to school or studying more. And this clear path of Piper going to law school, passing the bar, and then into a steady work life, it didn't go the way Fred had imagined. Piper's job with the DA did not last more than a year. It's not clear if Piper quit or she was fired. In the book, Die, My Love, I get the impression that the author is saying Piper was likely fired, but said she quit to save face. She was telling people that she didn't feel safe prosecuting cases. Piper found a new job as an in-house research attorney, which meant she didn't have to litigate cases anymore and that seemed to be a better fit for her for a little while. In the summer of 1989, the couple welcomed their first child, a daughter, and then less than three years later, they had their son. And so between the births of their first 
and second children, Piper changed jobs voluntarily this time, and she had taken a new job with a law firm. But she was fired during her second pregnancy. Piper filed a formal complaint alleging discrimination due to pregnancy, but it didn't go anywhere since the firm could show it was a performance issue. That was the direct cause of her getting fired, not her pregnancy. Piper was furious, and this sent her into a spiral, which was another thing she and Fred did not have in common. He was even-tempered, even in moments you would think he would be riled up, and Piper was riled up at even the slightest provocation. And her mood swings were exacerbated by pregnancy. After the birth of their second child, Piper came crashing down and had to force herself out of bed each day as she battled severe postpartum depression. It's not entirely clear if she sought treatment for this specifically, but Piper and Fred did go to marriage counseling during this time. All those differences between them and the added stress of parenthood had added up to arguments and some resentment. The work-life balance was just not working. And of course, in all of this, their personalities are clashing. Piper liked to go with the flow, while Fred was very precise in how he thought things should be done. Piper was also very independent, while Fred saw them as more of a unit. And when I say Piper was independent, I don't just mean she thought for herself. Piper did what she wanted. So one story that gets repeated often is that she withdrew over $1,500 from her retirement account And she used some other savings to get breast enhancement surgery. And she did this without talking to Fred about it ahead of time. Fred learned about the surgery two days before Piper had it done. Fred said he didn't want her to get it done because he was worried about complications, which, in my opinion, that's not entirely where this went wrong. If Piper wanted cosmetic surgery and it was a risk she wanted to take, that's her prerogative. But it's that she didn't tell Fred until the last minute, meaning Fred was going to have to deal with all the cooking, the cleaning, the childcare while she recovered, and he really had no notice. She had also removed money from her retirement account, money that Fred viewed as part of their combined future. He wouldn't have removed $1,500 from his accounts without talking to her first. So this really shows the difference in how they viewed things. Everyone's marriage and relationships are for the people involved to negotiate the details. It's not for other people to say what is right or wrong. But it sounds like Fred and Piper needed some help negotiating what worked for both of them, since they were not agreeing on their own. And that's where their first round of marriage counseling came in. In the meantime, Piper did find another job, which lasted around a year. This job was another one that was not a good fit for Piper. And the decision for her to resign was mutual between her and the employer. 
Piper then decided to go into private practice. This would let her choose what kind of cases she wanted to work on, what kind of hours she wanted to work, to a larger degree than her other jobs had. But starting a practice is much like starting any other business. It isn't cheap. She had expenses but no clients, so the practice was funded through the couple's savings to get it off the ground. And Piper was still in this startup phase when she learned she was pregnant for the third time in 1993. There were complications and they lost the baby. Postpartum depression occurs much more often in women who have experienced it before like Piper had, and now we're adding in the grief of losing the baby. So, of course, Piper really struggled after the pregnancy loss. But even before this loss, things were becoming increasingly difficult to balance. They have a young family with two working professionals who were both putting in 60-hour work weeks. Piper wanted to stay home with her children, and Fred, who had a pretty traditional view of marriage and family, agreed that would be best for everyone. The immediate issue, though, was a financial consideration. They had built their lives, including building a beautiful new home, with the idea that there would be two incomes coming in. So to make this transition to one income work out, Fred took a new job in 1994 at the University of Richmond in Virginia. The change came with a huge income boost, about $30,000 more a year, and this is mid-1990s money. So the family of four packed up and left Texas, moving 1,400 miles away to Virginia, and Piper became a very typical at-home mom. The couple had a third child, another daughter, And Piper again dealt with postpartum depression. This time, she's dealing with it very far away from her family, who were her big support unit. Piper had always been very close to her siblings, especially her sister Tina. Because of their father's unstable role in their lives and their mother having to support and raise five children largely on her own, Tina did a lot of caretaking of Piper when they were younger, and it forged a deep, deep bond. And Piper very much missed her family when she was in Virginia. Piper had lived away from her family for a year in Germany, but that was the longest she had ever been away from them. And she always knew she was going back to Texas. This move felt more permanent, and it was very hard on her. Initially, Piper threw herself into that mom role, cooking from scratch and doing homework with the kids and driving them to soccer and to dance and to piano lessons. But some neighbors told the author, Catherine Casey, for her book, Die My Love, that Piper was a super mom when it came to art projects and cheering at soccer games. But when it came to the day-to-day care of her children, 
she was always looking for someone else to deal with it. And as Fred was a solutions guy, he thought hiring a nanny to help with childcare and housework would give Piper time to pursue her own interests outside of the home, like art and tennis. When they would be in between nannies, owing to the nannies quitting or being fired, some neighbors felt that Piper started to take advantage of them or their own nannies for free babysitting. And at the same time, Fred wasn't home very much. The job he had taken at the University of Richmond was to get a new program set up and off the ground. Between that, teaching, and research, Fred was working longer and longer hours. And when he would come home in the evenings, he would play with the kids for a little bit, have dinner, and then disappear into his office to finish up his work for the day. The marriage began suffering from this lack of time and investment in their relationship. Piper went in early 1999 to a psychiatrist named Dr. Stephen Welton. She was 39 years old at that point, and she had been taking a stimulant diet medication off-label to treat her ADHD for many years. But from the early 1980s to the late 1990s, a lot of progress was made in ADHD treatment, and there were better options on the market. So the first thing Dr. Welton did was swap out that diet medication for Adderall, which was a big success. It immediately helped Piper. Then they started working on medication to treat Piper's depression. During her sessions with Dr. Welton, Piper was open with him, and she admitted that she was having an affair and that her marriage was falling apart. But this affair was fairly short-lived. In the spring of 1999, Piper dropped her boyfriend, and then on the surface, things seemed to be getting better in the marriage. Fred finished out the semester, so then he had more time at home, and he wasn't teaching any classes. At that point, he was able to give Piper more of the attention she felt she needed. The family had bought a beach house with Fred's inheritance from his parents, so they spent a lot of time together out there as a family over the summer of 1999. But this peaceful summer was interrupted when Fred learned that Piper had been keeping a very big secret. I mean, other than the affair. Though others around town had whispered about the affair, it had never made it back to Fred. This secret had to do with the family finances. A couple of years before this point, when the two were in marriage counseling, one of the things Piper complained about was that she had no say and no control over their family life. Fred, who was, as I've mentioned before, precise and exact in everything he did, kept the family on a budget. Piper characterized it more like a leash. So they agreed that after the large bills were paid, Piper would have control over the remainder to pay smaller bills, budget groceries and expenses and clothing, determine savings, and so on. 
Fast forward to the summer of 1999, in between trips to their beach house, 47-year-old Fred applied for a loan to buy a new vehicle. He learned through the credit check that Piper had accumulated $32,000 in credit card debt in the time she was in charge of the family finances. Fred was angry, he was hurt, he was disappointed, he was all the things you could feel in this situation. He took back control of the purse strings, and he told Piper that she was going to have to go get a job. He expected her to contribute to paying back all of this debt. And since the family was already paying for a housekeeper and childcare, While Piper stayed home, there really was no debate over whether what Piper could earn would compensate for added expenses because there weren't going to be any added expenses. There was a problem with Piper getting a job. The field where Piper could make the most money to pay off this incredible debt was in law. However, she was not licensed to practice in Virginia. She had not applied for reciprocal bar membership when they moved there since she didn't plan on going to work. So Piper couldn't practice law herself in Virginia, but she could be like a legal assistant and work under another attorney, which is what she did. But this lawyer was preparing to retire, so he was giving Piper more and more work. And eventually, that expanded out beyond what Piper really should have been doing without a law license. Eventually, the state bar found out about this when a client tried to file a bar complaint against Piper, only to learn there was no record for her. The state bar basically told Piper to take the bar exam or stop working in the legal field. Piper first applied for reciprocal admission based on her being an attorney in good standing in Texas. But this isn't a rubber-stamped application process. There are requirements, and one of them is that you have to have practiced law full-time for at least three of the last five years, which we know Piper did not do. Piper, in her application, claimed she had been working while living in Virginia, representing clients in Texas. But her list of clients were essentially family members, and it's hard to say that your family has enough legal work for you to be classified as full-time which to the Virginia bar means something like 32 hours a week. Worse for her, Piper asked a neighbor, who was also an attorney, to mail in a statement saying that she was aware Piper practiced law full-time while living in Virginia. Piper even gave her the prepared statement to just sign and mail in. The neighbor was not about to risk her own bar standing by lying, because she knew Piper hadn't been working, so she wrote on the top of the statement that she actually had no knowledge of the things written in the letter, and she mailed that in to the bar. So worse than not even sending it in, she called it out. This was 
basically an anti-character reference. Not surprisingly, Piper's application was denied, and she would need to sit for the bar exam in Virginia if she wanted to continue practicing law. To me, from the outside, it really sounds like Piper didn't like being a lawyer that much. So I don't know why she didn't take this opportunity to change careers and do something she did like. Instead, she and Fred spent $3,000 for her to take a bar exam prep class. Fred took over most of the childcare duties after work so that she could study. He hired a full-time housekeeper so she wouldn't have to do anything cooking or cleaning related while she studied. All Piper had to do was study. Then she could take the bar exam, pass, and they would hopefully move on with their lives. But Piper didn't study in this time, and therefore she didn't pass the bar. In March 2000, after the results were posted, Piper spiraled into a depression and a period of unstable mood swings. This was exacerbated a few months later when Piper had to have a hysterectomy. Fred ended up spending much of that summer caring for the children while Piper dealt with the fallout and her depression and the tailspin she was in following this very difficult springtime. Fred did ask Piper to try marriage counseling again in the fall when it seemed pretty clear that Piper was done. She was done with the marriage. She told Fred no. She was not interested in any more counseling. She didn't think more counseling was the answer. And she indicated to others that she planned to move back to Texas with the children. But Piper didn't immediately make any moves towards leaving, and the family even planned a trip to Disney for December 2000. Shortly before the trip, Piper had a medical or mental health incident that I'm not sure has ever fully been explained. She borrowed her friend Linda's car to run an errand and then disappeared for hours. Eventually, a neighbor named Melody got a call that Piper needed someone to pick her up from a doctor's office after she had been sedated. Melody picked Piper up, got her home, and settled her into bed. She noticed that Piper was really out of it. That night, Piper called Linda, the friend whose car she borrowed, and asked her to come over. A somewhat frantic Piper was pacing the living room, trying to piece together what had happened that day, and she asked Linda what she knew. It seemed Piper didn't remember much of anything. After hearing Linda's story about her borrowing the car, Piper blurted out that Fred was drugging her. Fred was in the room when this accusation was made, which was incredibly awkward for Linda, particularly since she didn't think what Piper said was true. From where she stood, it looked like Piper was losing it. After Linda left, Piper called her sister Tina and told her basically the same thing, that Fred was drugging her. Piper asked if she could come stay with Tina, and Tina said, of course. So while Fred slept, Piper packed up for herself and their youngest daughter and took a car service to the airport. 
She was on a flight to Houston by the time Fred and the other kids woke up and realized they were even gone. Fred called around to see where they were and figured it out that they had gone to Texas. Piper's sister Tina said she was alarmed to see how low Piper looked emotionally and psychologically. She said Piper slept a lot and... Tina believed that the controlling marriage to Fred had left Piper's self-esteem in shambles. Fred, in the meantime, decided to give Piper her space for a week. He took the older two kids on the planned vacation to Disney. Then afterwards, the three of them flew to Texas to see Piper and the little one. Fred and Piper spent a few days talking about their marriage and their future together. Piper did not want to go back to Virginia. She wanted to stay close to her family. But Piper agreed to go home with Fred and the kids on the condition that Fred looked for a new job that would bring them back to Texas or at least closer to Texas And Fred made good on this by applying for a job in Austin pretty much as soon as they got home. But while Fred thought Piper was coming home to reconcile and rebuild the family, it seems in hindsight like this may have been a ploy on Piper's part to buy time. Fred had taken over control of the finances after the entire incident of getting them into debt, and he had taken away all of Piper's credit cards except one that had a pretty low maximum. Since Piper wasn't working and Fred controlled the finances, Piper simply didn't have the money to leave. All she had access to was $500 on a credit card. So during the month of December, Piper secretly set up a personal bank account. Then she set out to get all the cash and services she would need in order to leave. Fred mysteriously lost a credit card in this time period and had to order a new one. Piper pocketed the new card when it came in the mail and used it to get cash advances. Piper also prepaid a moving company, as well as prepaid for two or three years worth of haircuts at a salon back in Texas. But before Fred learned about these purchases, Piper had already moved out of the home and in with a friend. The kids stayed with Fred during the week, and then Piper took them on the weekends. Occasionally, though, Piper would go back to the house and stay at the family home for a few days. And she was there on January 11th, 2001, when she and Fred started arguing. Piper called the police and said Fred pushed her. The police responded and Fred claimed that the argument was only verbal. The kids, who unfortunately were witnessing this whole thing, told the police that they did not see any shoving. Piper told the police that Fred was abusive, he had been abusive in the past, and that her neighbor, Melody, knew all about it. So the police went over to Melody's house and asked her if she was aware of any abuse in the Jablin Roundtree home. And Melody said no. She had never seen anything to indicate that Fred was abusive, 
and she didn't even know why Piper would say that she did. The police responded to the home again on January 31st. Fred told them that Piper was acting oddly and she was trying to leave with the children. But Piper told them that Fred had locked the kids in a room and would not let them come out. The police talked both of them down and convinced them to separate for the night and then come back together the next morning to discuss whatever custody issue was happening. Fred was at this point still hoping to save the marriage, even though Piper had accused him of drugging her, of pushing her, of abusing her. She had gotten them into huge amounts of debt and so on. He even offered to move to Texas at the end of that semester, even if he didn't have a new job, if that is what it took to keep Piper happy. But Fred finally hit the point of no return in early February when the credit card statements from the card she had stolen from him started rolling in, and he learned about all of those cash advances. In total, Piper had siphoned off about $20,000 from various accounts in four to six weeks. Mind you, they were still paying off the $32,000 she had run up a couple of years before. When Fred confronted Piper about this, he mentioned getting the police involved And afraid that Fred was going to have her arrested, Piper moved into a hotel to stay on the down low. But after a few days of hiding out, Piper decided to go on the offensive. Piper went to the courthouse and filed for a restraining order against Fred. She also swore out an arrest warrant for him based on her accusation of physical abuse from January 11th. This is something that is allowed in Texas. You, as a citizen, can go to the magistrate, give your reasons for wanting someone arrested for a crime, and swear you're telling the truth. The magistrate can decline the warrant, just like a judge can do to the DA or the police, or they can sign it. In this case, It was signed, and an arrest warrant was issued for Fred Jablin. That is in spite of the police finding no signs of abuse when they responded to the call. Fred was arrested at work and walked across the campus in handcuffs. When he was released later that day, Fred needed to have a friend go get his things from the house because the restraining order barred him from returning, even though Piper had already moved out. Fred moved into an extended stay motel while Piper moved back into the house with the children. On March 11, 2001, Fred filed for emergency custody over his fears that the children were not safe with Piper. The judge granted it. The next day, Piper both filed another warrant for Fred's arrest, which also was approved, and she moved out of the house while he was locked up again. This time, without Fred to stop her, Piper took everything she wanted, including some heirlooms from Fred's late mother, who Piper 
didn't really have a meaningful relationship with. The only reason to take them was so that Fred didn't have them. After Fred was released for the second time, he reached out to Piper one last time. He was prepared to go forward with a divorce. But he was not looking forward to what he knew was going to be a contentious court battle. And he worried about the impact on the children. So for the sake of the kids, he reached out to Piper one last time to see if there was any chance of reconciling this. But Piper said she was not coming back. So on March 16th, 2001, Fred filed for divorce. He was given temporary custody, and the restraining order was lifted so he could move back into the family home. He was ordered to pay Piper temporary spousal support. In Piper's countersuit for divorce, she accused Fred of abuse and cruelty and asked for joint custody. But Piper's behavior continued to show signs of instability. She had taken to writing long and sometimes confusing and sometimes explicit emails. Sometimes she would send them to everyone in her address book, so even Fred would get them directly. At least one email went to one of their children. Other times, they would just be to specific friends who would then forward them to Fred, knowing that he was trying to decide still if he was going to work with Piper on shared custody or if she was just not capable in his view of caring for the children. In July 2001, Fred made up his mind and petitioned for full custody. He used those emails as evidence against her. He also had other complaints, like how Piper took the kids on dates with her new boyfriend, who also happened to be their daughter's married doctor, and that Piper didn't properly supervise them during her parenting time. Also, the domestic violence charges against Fred had been dropped, so Fred accused Piper of having him arrested on false charges so that she could get access to the house and steal things. There were also times that Piper had her parenting time with the kids, but she wouldn't take them to scheduled appointments and activities. No real reason not to go, she just wouldn't take them. So does that sound like someone who the kids should spend half their time with when Piper wasn't doing the bare minimum of getting them to things like their therapy appointments? Fred was very angry about Piper's relationship with this doctor, which various reports place the affair starting months before Piper moved out of the house, though some say it started after she moved out. While Fred's primary motive here in this custody battle was to protect the kids, and I fully believe that, I don't think we can ignore that he was straight up angry as well. Not that the doctor was faring a whole lot better with Piper. She reportedly made repeated death threats against his wife. The same day the custody petition was filed in court by Fred's attorney, Fred had the kids out at the family's beach house. The alarm back at the family's home in Richmond went off, 
and when the police arrived, they found Piper in the house. She had broken in by smashing a window. And this was actually the second time she had done this. About two weeks before she broke in, again while Fred and the kids were at the beach house. She said it was so she could visit with the family pets. When the police contacted Fred that time after the alarm went off, he said he wanted Piper arrested for trespassing. But they were still married and they jointly owned the house. Fred had no paperwork saying that Piper couldn't be there. That time, she stole some things, including a kiddish cup Fred had inherited from his parents. Piper was not only not close to his parents, she wasn't even Jewish. Again, the only value the cup had to Piper was that it had value to Fred, and that's why she took it from him. With this second break-in, the police pointed out to Fred, again, that he still didn't have anything barring her from entering the house. You're allowed to break your own window. On the one hand, Piper was doing things that were impulsive and self-destructive, like breaking into the house and sending those bizarre emails. She had to have known those things would not look good in court, but she didn't seem to be able to stop herself. On the other hand, she did do things that were more planned out and methodical, like intercepting that credit card, prepaying for moving expenses, getting the warrants to make Fred look like an abuser. We will get a little bit more of a glimpse into the psychology of Piper Roundtree with the custody battle because psych evals were ordered. So the first custody hearing was in August 2001, and Piper's sister Tina came out to support her. From where Tina sat, it looked to her like Piper was an excellent mother, having long suffered in this controlling and abusive marriage. Fred told a friend that he wondered if Tina wasn't behind a lot of Piper's behaviors, hyping her up behind the scenes and such. Piper was so impulsive. So I wonder if the methodical parts are what are connected to Tina. If Tina truly believed her sister was in an abusive relationship, which it does sound like she sincerely believed that, telling Piper ways to get the money to leave and prepaying for services is exactly the advice a sister would have given. It's the advice I would have given. Maybe not stealing a credit card for large cash advances. I'm much more of a get the cash back at the grocery store kind of embezzler when it comes to fleeing an abusive relationship. But the idea, the principle is the same. Find a way to get the money you need to leave. But regardless of where Piper was getting her advice, she was having to stand in front of this judge and listen to people say whether or not she was a good mom. And that's what custody hearings are largely about. Are the parents good parents? The judge did not issue a ruling right away. So they left court, and then you would imagine most people leaving court would then be on their best behavior pending the ruling. But of course, that's not what happened. Piper entered the house without permission some more. She went through Fred's mail. She missed appointments the kids had, and she even tried to get a third 
domestic violence warrant sworn out on Fred, but this one was denied. It was really more of the same, and Fred kept records and logs of all of it. In September, the judge ruled to continue with how things had been in the temporary order, with Fred having physical custody and Piper having visits and the two sharing legal custody, which basically means decision-making. She appointed a psychiatrist they both had to work with, and then the judge would make her final decision after getting those reports. Now, at this point, Piper started trying really hard to keep it together. She was being watched actively by the courts. She started showing up at the kids' schools to have lunch with them, something she hadn't done before. The emails she and Fred sent to each other were cordial, though Piper would try to plant little things here and there. For instance, Fred would ask her a detail, like what time was she going to pick up the kids? And she would email back that she already told him and how it scared the kids that he was so forgetful, but Fred would insist she never gave him the information to begin with. While all of these things would be important in the overall case, the judge had already heard a lot of the little details of their relationship. Really, the main thing she was waiting on for final determination of custody was the psychological evaluation. Fred and Piper both willingly participated in this, and the psychiatrist appointed by the judge was Dr. Hagen. He decided to bring in a clinical psychologist Dr. Masters, to consult. It was January 2002 that both the psychiatrist and the clinical psychologist presented their findings to the court, and they did not entirely agree. So let's start with Dr. Hagen. He found nothing concerning with Fred. Fred's scores on evaluations showed that he was someone who was slow to anger he was more of a peacemaker, definitely positives as a parent. Piper, on the other hand, was the type to get angry easily and shift blame to others. She was also, quote, recklessly impulsive. Dr. Hagen said he did not spend enough time with her to diagnose her, but he did lean towards Piper having dissociative disorder. Dissociative disorder is often associated with a type of it, which is dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. But the broader definition is that this is a persistent mental state that is marked by feelings of being detached from reality and or being outside of one's own body. And it can also include memory loss. The disorder is generally the result of trauma. But Dr. Hagen couldn't rule out other diagnoses, like a character disorder, bipolar disorder, or even substance abuse. He said Piper needed long-term therapy. The clinical psychologist Dr. Master disagreed. He believed Piper had ADHD and an adjustment disorder. Dr. Master said he did not know if Piper's mental health issues would impair her ability to parent, but if she did get help, she had a good prognosis. An adjustment disorder is a stress-related condition, so we all struggle 
finding our bearings after a major change or a stressful time. We take a break and we're soon ready to move forward, even if it takes us a while to fully recover from it. But for someone with an adjustment disorder, the time of feeling ready to put one foot in front of the other doesn't come for a long time. The symptoms are similar to anxiety and depression and go hand in hand with them. But because they are linked to a recent stressor or change, the good news is that treatment can be relatively brief. People with adjustment disorders often find they really only need therapy and treatment right after the stressor or change, and they can even plan for it. Of course, that does require a proper diagnosis first. But if you notice yourself really struggling for months after stressors or changes, and you feel this way on the regular, you should consider talking to a therapist about it. Then the next time there's a big change that you know is coming up, like you get a new job, you can be in that therapist's office or on a telemedicine call with them on day one, and it can really make a huge difference. You know I am pro-therapy all day, every day, and Dr. Master was basically saying this about Piper, that adjustment disorders are considered in general highly treatable, even at 42 years old like Piper was, after a lifetime of unhealthy coping mechanisms. As for Fred, Dr. Master found that he was the type to overreact to things when he was under stress, and that Fred viewed Piper as the source of all conflict without accepting his role in contributing to it. That is not a great place to be in a co-parenting situation, but it was something Fred could work on. There was additional testimony from both sides about parenting, with Piper's side painting Fred as absent and hypercritical, and Fred's side saying Piper was unstable and neglectful of the children's needs. The custody plan that Piper submitted was for 50-50 parenting time, where they were one week with her and one week with Fred. Fred, however, was sticking with his request to retain full custody, with Piper getting visitation. In March 2002, the judge made her decision. She made the temporary order permanent. Piper was not going to get her joint custody request. Three days later, Piper sent an email far and wide called, quote, Jablin Psychological Profile. Piper said she was attaching a court document, but she didn't. She wasn't leaking the court-ordered psych evaluation on Fred Jablin. Her sister, Tina, who is a registered nurse working in women's health, had written a psychological profile of Fred that was never part of the court case. So before anyone even clicked on the attachment, there was already one lie in the email. This was not a court document. In this report, Tina called Fred a narcissist, alleged abuse, said Fred never wanted the children, and even said that the oldest daughter was suicidal in his care. In the 40-plus page assessment, 
Tina wrote that Fred being Jewish had something to do with this because Jewish people have persecution complexes. That is something that Tina decided to put in writing, using her professional credentials to back her up. Someone forwarded the email to Fred. Piper had sent it blind CC, so he didn't know who all had received it. Fred went back to court to petition for sole custody and to limit Piper's access to the children. He said the blasting of this bizarre and unqualified psych report was detrimental to their children's well-being. Piper had, as Fred found out, sent it to some of the parents of the kids' friends and even their son's Boy Scout leader. In July 2002, Piper and Fred found themselves in court again over this email, among other things. Fred also wanted the judge to finalize the divorce, even though the financial settlement had not been finished. In the end, Fred won. The win is a funny word here. Both sides were emotionally and financially drained from 16 months of court battles. But the divorce was granted on the grounds of Piper's infidelity. Fred was given sole custody of the children, and Piper's parenting time was cut back. So as much as anyone could win in this nightmare situation, Fred won. A month later, Piper packed up and moved back to Texas. With Tina's help, Piper got set up renting an office in another lawyer's office so she could get back to work and support herself, which would be incredibly important since her spousal support that she had been granted in the beginning had been cut off, and she was being ordered to pay child support. Not that Piper paid it, but she was ordered to. And the longer Piper didn't pay it, the more she was ordered to pay monthly to catch up. Money seemed to take the place of the custody battle now. The lawyer Piper rented space from, Marty McVeigh, said she would complain not so much about Fred, but about the Virginia court system, which she felt had treated her poorly both in the custody battle and with the financial issues. Fred's retirement funds, which were in the six figures, hadn't been divided and were a source of contention, as was who had to pay to fly the kids to Texas for Piper's visits. Piper moved without giving notice, but Fred had more money than her, so she thought he should pay to fly the kids to Texas, and he refused. So most of the time, Piper had to fly to Virginia to see the kids since one ticket to Virginia was cheaper than three to Texas. With her own financial problems mounting, Piper tried to file for bankruptcy, but the judge dismissed it with prejudice, meaning she could not file again because he was informed that Piper was trying to use the bankruptcy to disrupt the financial settlement issues in the divorce. But when Piper did finally get her financial settlement and her share of Fred's retirement fund, things stabilized a bit. She didn't get as much money as she thought she would, but it was enough to get herself set up a little bit. 
She found a well-paying job as a researcher for a title company, and she seemed to enjoy it. She dated a few people, and Fred started dating again. Piper called the kids at least once a day, often more than that, and Fred did not interfere with the phone calls. When Piper would call and say she was coming to Richmond, even when she didn't give the court-required notice, Fred would give her access to the kids, though she would complain every time Fred wouldn't bend the court order, but he was doing his best, it seems. Fred was emailing her pictures of the kids, their artwork, their school assignments, general updates, really regularly, and Piper would respond, thanking him for sending things over, maybe requesting another thing or two to be sent. And by the summer of 2004, things honestly looked like they were settling down. Piper and Fred found themselves in a mostly cordial, not friendly, but mostly cordial co-parenting situation. In October 2004, Piper made plans to come to Virginia to take the kids camping for one of her weekends. Their oldest daughter was in high school, and she had a homecoming dance that weekend, so Fred told Piper about the dance. But Piper insisted that they go camping instead, and their daughter could just miss the dance. Now, Fred didn't understand this. Why not do the hair and the nails and the pictures with her daughter rather than make her miss the dance just to go camping? But they had found their balance, and one of the things co-parents in balance know is that you don't really get a say when it comes to the other parent's parenting time. If Piper wanted to take their children camping instead of to go get hair done, that was her decision. So Fred shut his mouth and just helped Piper load the car up with the kids' things and waved them goodbye. They went camping, they had a great time, and everyone seemed happy, even Piper. When she got back to Texas, she seemed like she was in a really good mood. About three weeks after the camping trip, on Saturday, October 30th, 2004, 52-year-old Fred Jablin stepped out of his house to pick up the morning paper, just like he did every single morning. It was still dark around 6.30 a.m. Three gunshots rang out, and a shadowy figure ran across a neighbor's lawn. The neighbor, Bob McArdle, immediately called 911. And that is where we are going to leave things for this week. Tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crime Lines True Crime. Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show 
that I co-created and write for. 